welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor. This episode, I've got some environmental education research news, and I'll be sharing a primer for a new resource I've developed on the peppered moth and evolution. It makes use of digitized specimens from the collections of the Natural History Museum here in London. But first, let's talk about that education news. In recent episodes, we've talked a lot about the duration of an environmental education intervention and how effective it can be. Now, just this past week, Learning Through Landscapes released a report on their My School, My Planet project. The project was supported by the Heritage Lottery Fund and was in partnership with the Centre for Education and Youth. It also worked with a network of outdoor learning agencies, uh, including the Conservation Volunteers, the Field Studies Council, the Garden Classroom, the Oasis Academy Trust, and the Royal Horticultural Society. Learning Through Landscapes worked with these outdoor learning agencies to put together an outdoor curriculum aimed at getting kids to engage more with their school and their neighborhood environment. So their their goals were to connect with nature, improve physical and mental well-being, all of which are really important things, particularly right now because of the pandemic and the restrictions that it's placed on all of our lives. So the project was spun up fairly quickly. They received funding in summer of 2020, and they began training for education providers in August of 2020. Then the intervention itself began in September and ran through to November 2020, and the report was published on February 24th of 2021. In the report, main findings were that uh, at the end of the project, participants felt more engaged with local environmental issues and they were more engaged with their school grounds, meaning that kids seemed to want to spend more time outside in the school grounds and they expressed more curiosity about things like how the grounds might change through the seasons, that kind of thing. The kids also reported being more physically active, which meant that they went outside more times during the week um, than they did in the months prior to the project beginning. Teachers also reported that these students sort of gained new knowledge about the topics which were studied in the project. Each school could choose a topic from climate change, biodiversity, or soils. In the report, they also talked about how they found that participants' connectedness to nature did not change much. Although this is only when you're looking at the group as a whole. If you divide it up, they found that the kids who were least connected with nature at the start, their sense of connectedness did increase by the end. And that was measured using a um, survey, which is, is well tested within the field. They also found that social well-being was overall relatively unchanged, um, as well as the participants' happiness with their school. However, that being said, the participants were all pretty happy with their school to begin with. So perhaps it's not uh, too bad or surprising a thing that that aspect didn't change too much. The project also had this additional goal of linking learning to cultural identities or cultural heritage. And some of the educators who were actually delivering the program reported having difficulty with this portion. And so it's a bit unclear how successful this particular aspect of the project was. So this was a pretty big study. It involved classes from 47 schools across the UK and had just over 1,000 students as participants. Uh, These students ranged from key stages one through three. That's kids aged about six to 13 years old. Now, all of this is a pilot project, so many findings 
in the report. They're actually more useful for future research or for a future rollout of this particular project um, rather than anything immediately useful for practitioners and education providers, which is a bit unfortunate. So a few points that I would have liked to see in the report uh, were a bit more details or case studies of what the interventions actually were. So what did the educators actually do in these sessions? Like what was different in this project from a normal school year? We can infer, because it's learning through landscapes, that there is a much stronger focus on being outdoors and making use of the school grounds than what teachers might have done in previous years. So in addition to what these sessions actually looked like and what was done, we also don't know how many there were or how frequent they were. However, this was a project that was put together in working closely with the schools. So uh, I think we can safely assume that it would be much more embedded uh, across the, the school curriculum than, again, it might have been in previous years. Also, we would have liked to see some comparisons with some kind of control group or, you know, a school that was progressing with the curriculum as they kind of normally would. As it is, the results of the report are only comparisons with where kids were at the beginning of the program. So we don't actually know if the changes observed and reported here are any different from what could have been achieved had schools not participated in the program. There was this added caveat of this pilot being conducted in the autumn of 2020, and a lot of the comparisons, so particularly with what students were doing in terms of physical activity, is a comparison with what they were doing in the previous few months. And during the summer in the UK, we were under some pretty strict lockdown rules. So an increase in physical activity is not surprising um, with this project being conducted in the autumn, which is while a lot of the restrictions were, were lifted nationally. So how strong those results are, again, is, is not very clear. It's useful, though, to put this report in the context of environmental education research generally. So the increase in knowledge about the subject which was studied uh, that they reported here is not surprising. There's pretty solid evidence that the educational experiences that kids get on experiences like field trips and going to other outdoor sites, uh, that those experiences are effective. This is particularly true when there's a guided portion or education session with um, staff at a zoo or aquarium or some other outdoor site, and that this increase in knowledge is true even when that intervention is as short as a, a one or two hour long session. And so we can be pretty confident that uh, a lesson with a topic specialist makes a real difference in kids learning. And because the My Schools My Planet project worked with staff from precisely these kinds of organizations that, that specialize in these outdoor learning experiences, it's not surprising that on the aspect of subject knowledge, they were effective. So there are quite a few other studies that show similar patterns to the My School, My Planet pilot, and they give some better indication of what makes for effective practices and, and lengths of education intervention. And so they give us a, a bit of insight into why uh, learning through landscapes might have found the results that they did. So a particularly useful study is a report published in 1996 by Doug Knapp. And what he did was he reported on three studies, actually, that were conducted in parks in the state of Indiana in, in the U.S. Of particular interest in this report is that the projects varied in length. So they ranged from students doing a half-day trip 
to two field trips to a particular site. And in the final study, it was actually a year-long environmental education program that these students took part in. Now, in all three of these studies, it showed an impact on the students' knowledge. So again, unsurprising there, that's, that's pretty consistent across the research. However, only the year-long program showed an impact on students' attitudes and their intentions to act on environmental issues. So when you're talking about how effective an environmental education program is, it's important to be clear on what it is that you actually mean by that and, and what it is that you're actually measuring uh, when you try to measure success. So in most cases, when you're breaking down effectiveness, most of the research out there breaks it down into knowledge about environmental issues or knowledge about particular subject matter, knowledge about nature. Then there's attitudes towards nature and the environment. So how do the kids feel about it? You know, are they frightened of it? Do they like nature? Are their attitudes generally positive towards it? And then there's this dimension, which is, again, uh, much more difficult to measure, but it's is there a change in their behavior? Now, that's really difficult to measure because, um, you know, you can't follow these kids around and record how they're actually acting. So often what studies will do is instead they'll measure intention to act. That's saying, you know, yes, I will recycle more or yes, I'll try to reduce my food waste or I'll try to eat more plants and less meat. Because it, it's much easier to measure that kind of thing. You can do it in a survey, whereas measuring changes in behavior requires participants to self-report behavior. You can have them do a diary of what they did every day, but that's very labor-intensive and, and has its own problems. Um, or you can have the researcher follow people around and record how they act or record, you know, video them acting. And again, that's really difficult uh, and basically not really possible when you're talking about trying to measure behavior in a large group of kids. So in this 1996 report by Doug Knapp, he actually reported on these uh, attitudes and intentions to act on environmental issues, which are the, the slightly trickier dimensions to act. And it's, again, pretty consistent with other research to find that only the longer-term program showed any impact on these attitudes and intentions. Now, in this particular report, there are some other additional details which are potentially useful to understanding the My School, My Planet report. So in the study where participants went on two field trips, one trip focused on general ecological awareness, then the second trip focused on ecological issues. Now, after the ecological awareness session, the participants showed an increase in positive attitudes towards the site that they visited and to forests generally. The participants also talked more about organizing to support the park. Uh, so that's that intention to act. And they had a significant increase in ecological knowledge. Then there was the second field trip in this study, and in that one, the students looked more at environmental issues, so problems facing this site. After that session, the researchers' measures actually showed a lot of negative results. So the students showed a decrease in attitudes towards the park, so they were less positive about it. They were also less positive about following rules like staying on marked trails, um, and expressed less interest in participating in future walks or going to visit the site again. And they also expressed less willingness to support the park. 
So they had a decrease in their intentions to act. So this suggests that how a message is communicated has a really big impact on its effectiveness. And this general ecological awareness session seems to have been much more effective in the outcomes that you were hoping to achieve than the uh, issues focused one, which is quite interesting. So that this is a topic, though, that we'll explore in a future environmental education. The year-long program in Doug Knapp's 1996 report was also particularly interesting because many of the measures they found really petered off towards the end of the project. So the this one was the year-long like environmental education whole program that the students were participating in and they were finding you know there's an increase in knowledge increase in increase in positive attitudes towards nature increase in intentions to act but a lot of these measures kind of petered out towards the end of the project and the researchers suggest that this is probably because the participants were suffering from kind of like burnout or assessment fatigue so the participants were getting tired of being asked these questions about how much they care about in the environment over and over and over again. So the researchers suggest that interventions are probably more effective if they're kept actually a little bit shorter. So to the month or maybe to the a school term or a school semester kind of length rather than a full year. And that might help to avoid this kind of burnout. Now, that being said, I think the year-long program described in this report is probably quite different from the kind of more embedded um, soft-touch programming that we've discussed in past interviews. So particularly, this would be the case for the four school sessions that we talked about with Katia from Ecoactive, because in that program, there are no formal assessments, which might kind of take the fun out of these outdoor learning experiences. So when we go back and we have a look at the My School, My Planet pilot, it's possible that the program may have been slightly too long or slightly too intense. And so the kids were getting a bit burnt out about the subject towards the end of the program. It's also possible that the interventions, the lessons that the kids actually did along the way focused on issues in a way which was negative and, and might have weakened the potential impact of a program like this. But again, we would need to know a bit more about what the sessions that the students did in order to assess whether or not this was an, an issue. In 2001, Doug Knapp again and Raymond Poff, they published in the Journal of Environmental Education Research uh, another study, um, which is again informative to what might make effective practice here. So in this study, Knapp and Poff, they randomly selected 24 students from three classes to participate in a field trip, so a one-day field trip, to a U.S. Forest Service site near their school district, again in Indiana, where they had ranger-led sessions, uh, facilitated explorations, and nature games. After this field trip, Knapp and Poff, they followed up with interviews with the participants uh, one week after the field trip and then again four months after the field trip. So to, to look at how durable were the impacts that they found. So they found that overall there was a positive effect on participants' opinions and attitudes towards the site that they visited. And interestingly, what participants could recall about the trip, what they remembered, was mostly surrounding the things that they were really active in doing. So 
So the students had really detailed memories of the games that they played and the rules surrounding the games. And then these strong memories acted as anchor points from which they could kind of branch out and remember other aspects of the visit. So concepts that were closely related to the games that they played. Now, in contrast to this, the researchers found that passive portions of the day or the didactic sessions where, you know, the person leading the session was giving, delivering information to the kids, you know, um, those portions were only vaguely remembered and this got worse in the four month interview so that those memories faded quite quickly, whereas the memories about the games and the active portions were a bit more durable. And again, overall, there was little impact on participants' intentions or actions with regards to environmental issues. So again, this is something that we find that in these shorter sessions, changing behavior is much more difficult. Summing up this first portion of the episode, it's great to see this report on the My Schools, My Planet project from Learning Through Landscapes. It's nice to see that this fairly large-scale project saw very similar results uh, that we see in other environmental education research. Uh, however, it would have been good to get some extra details in this report. In particular, it would have been nice to see a comparison with schools that weren't active participants in the program so we could get a sense of whether the changes that were seen during this project were, were due to the project itself uh, and, and whether or not we might have seen more results in this project than with a school that was delivering a, a curriculum as they had in previous years. In particular, some details about what the education interventions actually entailed would have really helped in understanding uh, some of the details in the report in terms of the results. It would have been good to see whether or not the interventions, for instance, focused more on general awareness or on awareness of issues, because prior research has highlighted that as having a potential impact on the way in which students respond. It would also be really great to see some follow-up surveys with the students who participated in this project, maybe sometime around the end of the school year or the beginning of the next, in order to get a sense of how long-lasting or robust these changes that were observed are. From previous research, it seems that these results would be quite durable because the program lasted over an entire school term. Uh, and again, Getting details of what the interventions entailed might give us even more context in this. If the students were playing a lot of outdoor games, it might reinforce findings from previous research that those really active learning experiences really help with uh, the durability of the learning. Now, if you'd like to find out more about learning through landscapes or the My Schools, My Planet uh, pilot project, I'll I'll put a link to their website and links to the report in the full show notes. Check those out from our website at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. And uh, I'd encourage you to particularly go and check out Learning Through Landscapes. They're a great charity that really promote outdoor education, outdoor learning. So they've got lots of great resources on their website. So check them out. So in the second part of the show, something that we've never done before, but this is a teacher's primer to a resource that I've actually developed. The resource is about the peppered moth. 
Now, this is a pretty common moth. It's sort of a black, white, gray, speckled moth. Uh, and they're a really good illustration of evolution by natural selection, camouflage. And when you look at the story of the peppered moth and the research around it, it's also a really great example of how science operates. So what I've done is I've gone to the Natural History Museum's data portal and I've downloaded images of peppered moth specimens and I've cleaned them up for you so that you can put them against different bark backgrounds and look at how well these moths camouflage in their different color forms. This is going to be a primer, some background knowledge on the peppered moth so that you're ready to pick up this resource, plug it into your lessons and go from there. So here's the primer on the peppered moth. The peppered moth, or Biston betularia, is a species with huge variation. They can be white and speckled, which is called the typica color form, to almost entirely black, which is called the carbonaria form. In the 19th century, collectors in Britain were noticing that the darker carbonaria form was becoming much more common. At this time, coal had been fueling the Industrial Revolution for quite some time, and this was putting out huge amounts of air pollution, including lots of sulfur compounds. Now, when these sulfur compounds mix with water vapor in the atmosphere, it formed sulfuric acid, which fell as acid rain. Acid rain is not great for plants, and particularly these little crusty plants called lichen. Well, plants slash fungus. They're kind of two working together. And there are some species of lichen which are really sensitive to acid rains, and it was killing them off. So the death of these light-colored lichens, combined with soot from the coal, was leading to tree trunks in forests around big industrial cities like Birmingham and Manchester to become much darker. Naturalists guessed that the darker carbonaria form of the peppered moth was better camouflaged against these darker tree trunks and so were less likely to be eaten by birds. In 1956, the Clean Air Act came into force in the UK and this put really strict limits on air pollution. And since that time, lichens have regrown in a lot of these forests around industrial cities and the lighter colored moths have become much more common again. This phenomenon, which became known as industrial melanism, has become a textbook example of evolution by natural selection because you had uh, burning coal changing the environment and this change in the environment was putting a selective pressure on the moths, making it more likely for those darker colored carbonaria forms to survive. The story of naturalists investigating this industrial melanism phenomenon is also a good window into how science operates. In the 1950s, scientists were experimenting on what was going on here uh, by putting moths on trees and seeing if color and contrast with the tree trunks actually had an effect on a bird's likelihood of finding and eating a moth. Part of the old maxim is to never work with animals, and I imagine this is because you can't really tell an animal what you want them to do. So often, these scientists were working with dead moths, and they were either pinning or gluing them to the tree trunks in order to find out if the moths were camouflaging against the trees and if birds were eating them. However, these methods came under heavy criticism, and for a while, peppered moths were knocked off their textbook pedestal. So the main criticisms against these methods centered around the fact that these scientists were creating experimental situations which didn't really reflect the real world. 
one criticism was that the scientists were using way too many dead moths. So there were just so many of them that they were really easy for birds to find and they were effectively training birds to comment to this buffet that the scientists were putting out. The next problem was that dead moths can't sense these birds and, you know, fly away and escape. So that might have been throwing things off. And also there was the fact that scientists had been pinning them to tree trunks, probably because it was more convenient for them, let's be honest. Uh, and it was argued that actually peppered moths tended to hide on tree branches. And so putting these moths in parts of the tree where they wouldn't actually hide and that might have been affecting the results as well. So what scientists did, they responded to this criticism by designing experiments differently. They gathered more evidence in different ways. Uh, and the most comprehensive experiments were conducted by Michael Majerus. He started out by examining trees and noting the resting positions of these wild moths. So he tried to find out, okay, do these moths hide on branches or tree trunks? And he, he did find that these moths did indeed sometimes hang out on tree trunks. So with this information about how often moths hide on branches versus trees, you know, under branches, on top of branches, he, over several years, released thousands of live moths at densities which reflected what you would find in a wild population, you know, in a, in a forest somewhere. But what he did was he released them in sleeves around potential resting locations, and then what these moths would do is at sunrise they would seek shelter, so they would land on the tree branches or the tree trunks uh, in order to hide and rest there for the day. Once these moths had found a resting place, Majerus would remove the sleeves from around the moths and then he would come back four hours later. And the moths rarely flew away, so any missing moths were presumed to have been eaten by something. In order to determine whether or not these birds were actually be he then needed to determine whether or not it was birds that was doing the predation. And so what he did was actually observed some of these moths in their resting places through binoculars and record what they were eaten by. And what he found was indeed it was the birds which was doing the eating. And so this is an excellent example of experimental results being questioned and new experiments being designed which address the weaknesses or fill the gaps in previous research which is how the scientific process works. That's your quick primer on the story of the peppered moth, Biston betularia. The resource I've put together features digitized images of peppered moths from the Natural History Museum's collection. You'll also find graphs of data from real studies of wild peppered moth populations. And some of the slides in the PowerPoint, they've got sort of like mock samples of peppered moth populations, which reflect what scientists found in the study of the real populations. Students might use these pictures of samples to create their own graphs and look for patterns, uh, because this is what entomologists working in the field would do, and what was done to create these graphs, which I've then created the samples from. It's also a really good example of what historical museum collections are used for. Uh, this is particularly true in cases of collections of really small animals, so very often insects. Um, scientists will try to get representative samples of a population. These are then preserved in museum collections, and then they act as like snapshots, records of what a population is like at the time when those specimens were collected. 
So for links to this image bank resource, which I've created, again, check out our website, knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. You'll find there a link to download the PowerPoint of the resource and the images. And you'll also find a few other ideas for how your class might make use of this resource. Let me know if you find these background information primers useful, and I'll, I'll do more of them. I'm also keen for feedback on the resource. Let me know what you would add or take out of the resource, if there's more information you need, or if there's more pictures that you might find useful, and I'll do my best to add them to the resource. That's it for this episode. Again, full show notes on everything can be found at our website, knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at KN underscore podcast, where I retweet environmental education resources and ideas. Thanks for listening. 